Are you ready to free the body and free the soul? Join Dr. David, the cutting edge doc, as he guides us on today's journey. Here's Dr. David. Welcome, friends. Welcome to another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. I'm your host, Dr. David, the Cutting Edge Doc, and here on Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing or spirituality or social transformation. I'm very excited about today's show. Today, my special guest is Alan Seeler, who's one of the world's uh, foremost experts on the topic of ontological coaching. I know that's a mouthful, so don't worry, we'll break down what that means in a few minutes, but um, I'm excited to bring Alan to my tribe and uh, for you to get a deeper understanding of, the, of what ontological coaching is and what are some of the potential benefits to you and your loved ones and to our society if ontological coaching can be adopted as a uh, more standard practice in our world? Um, those of you who follow me for a long time know that I've mentioned in terms of my personal opinion that the field of psychology is a little bit at a plateau unless they go in a couple of directions. One is acknowledging the seamless uh, unity of looking at psychology and physiology, and also the area of looking at psychology in the context of a deeper ground of being, which uh, for most of recent history has been relegated to the the, the field of spirituality, and yet, uh, in my experience, ontology and ontological coaching gives, gives the average person a real uh, possibility of accessing some of these deeper levels of understanding the self in the world that historically has been relegated to um, a topic such as spirituality that seems inaccessible to most people. So I'm really excited about today's show. And with that, let me bring Alan Seeler into the conversation. Alan, welcome to Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. Thank you, David. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. Okay, so um, these are in-depth interviews, so we have plenty of time. So the way I like to usually start, <clears throat> excuse me, is just to turn it over to you and give you a chance to introduce yourself and your work to our viewers and listeners in the context of some of my opening remarks. So let me turn it over to you for a little bit. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. No, I, I, I agree with your, your opening comments, I think, about the relegation of, of being. And um, <clears throat> it's, I think it's a shame that it's not more accessible for people uh, as part of how they can live their everyday lives. It's certainly not been part of traditional um, education and training um, and yet I think it goes to the heart of like how we are as people, how we function, um, how we get on with each other um, and how we can improve the way we do that. Um, <clears throat> so I mean I've been involved with the work since uh, 1995, I had good fortune to be introduced to it and um, I, I looked at our various other modalities uh, I mean, when I was I was a teacher for many years, working with students in schools that had so-called behavioural and learning difficulties, uh, who I thought were very smart, and the the system didn't do a very good job catering for how their brains worked. <clears throat> so I got interested in, um, or it was apparent to me that the way you related with the students and communicated with them played such a big role in their chance for succeeding at school, and so that got me interested in approaches to communication and um, that ended up being um, all about me so self-awareness became an issue that I, I thought I mightn't have to deal with but it because uh, it's been invaluable and uh, <clears throat> you know the, uh, amongst the modalities was neuro-linguistic programming was um, uh, various approaches to counseling I didn't I uh, studied hypnosis I didn't want to be a hypnotherapist but I could see that 
um, people who were very good at um, hypnotherapy were actually quite exquisite communicators, paying attention to the clients they were working with at quite a minute level. Um, <clears throat> and that was all very valuable. And then when I came across ontology, I thought, wow, where did this come from? It had been such a huge, for me, it was like such a huge step forward um, from, from what else I'd studied, which, which was quite useful. And no question I got benefit from it. But when I found ontology, it was a bit like now I know what I, what I want to do when I grow up. Um, and I consider that I'm still growing up, still learning. There's still so much to learn. Um, Why don't uh, we start at the, before we go further than that, so we don't lose any of our viewers and listeners. If you could just uh, briefly define the word ontology and how you use it and then segue into what is ontological coaching just to provide a reference point and then we can get back to your personal story, okay? Yeah, that's fine, okay. yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, if you, if you go to a dictionary, you'll see in there somewhere that ontology is defined as the, um, the study of being or the study of existence. And of course, in this case, we're focusing on uh, <clears throat> human beingness and human existence. Um, and ontological coaching is, is coaching to way of being, um, which uh, I regard as the sort of underlying driver of behavior and communication. Um, way of being, I, I consider, is where our perceptions and attitudes live, many of which are, are deep-seated and out of awareness. And it's very easy, of course, to be flying blind with those and, and losing the possibility to be more effective in how we're living our lives and including relating with others. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think one of the distinguishing things about the ontological approach is it's put in the context of second order learning. Uh, <clears throat> so that um, first order learning is when we reflect back on our behavior. So we've been involved in some situation and it either goes well or doesn't go well. And we think about our behavior and, and you know what we'd want to keep for next time or what we definitely would want to change that didn't work so well. <clears throat> and, and that can be really useful, um, but it might miss the sort of deeper underlying perceptions that keep um, keep us being in ineffective habits uh, of how we're going about life. So second order learning is about reflecting on our way of being. So what, what was going on with my thoughts? What was happening with me and my emotions and my moods? And what was happening in the configuration of my physiology? You know, what was my muscle tension? What was my breathing? How, how could, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> how could that have been affecting? the way that um, I was perceiving the situation, the way I was thinking um, is I think what's a key distinguishing aspect of, of the ontological approach. But the, a lot of people might listen to what you were saying just then and they might say, well, that sounds like depth psychology. Mm. That's, what, what makes, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, yeah, that's what good. makes ontology sort of more, what makes it deeper or more radical or more um, essential than the realm that the psychologist would tend to deal with? Like in my feeling, I get a lot of patients and clients and students in my practice who've had quite a bit of various forms of psychological assistance mm. and yet they're still stuck being what they've been being that they don't know they've been being. And yeah. so for me, there's something about ontological inquiry that goes deeper than looking at one's thinking and one's feeling. For me, it's more of a, a deeper level that is correlated with the things that you've mentioned. It's like correlated with what you can think 
and what you can feel and mm -hmm. and 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 how your physiology is and um I want to draw you out a little bit because I think yeah, right. I think mm -hmm. I think with ontology we're pointing to something even deeper than what the viewer or listener might have concluded from what you've just said so far. Okay, no, thank you for doing that. Yeah. Um, well, my response is I think it goes into specifics that that I don't think other areas seem to go into. Um, I mean, for example, you know, we, we deal with, with specific moods that can have a huge impact on us. Um, and, and moods are often, you know, invisible. They're in the background, but they're, they're continually shaping our perceptions and behaviour. Um, in the language area, I think, we, I think we, there might be some similarities with some different aspects of psychology, but I think we've got a much more coherent approach about different areas of language and how they combine together um, and basically how the way that you use language plays such a powerful role in the reality that you're living from and so it's getting into those specifics that i think make the difference and and that people can see that this is immediately relevant and practical um, i mean it, i mean this, this work comes from some what I call some really heavy duty thinkers in the 20th century who developed brilliant ideas. Um, but the challenge is how do you make those ideas accessible to people? Um, and that's to me, I'm always, the question I've always got is like ontology, so what? You know, we might think it's the best thing since sliced bread, but what can people go and do with it that'll make a difference in their lives? I agree. I mean, I think a lot about, in that context, I think a lot about the life and the work of Martin Heidegger, mm. where he was attempting to share about the this realm of being and the power of having something to say about being. And yet um, my sense of him is that he became increasingly frustrated and disillusioned in his ability to um, effectively communicate in a way that uh, more than a handful of people could grasp mm -hmm. what he was pointing at. And uh, so I wanna underscore what you're saying that um, bringing the ontological realm or some facility in the ontological realm to life for people in a meaningful way that makes a difference in their everyday being in the world is no small feat. No, no, it's not. And I want to give enormous credit here to the, what I call the founder of what we call the ontological approach now, Fernando Flores, um, you know, who, who really, he, he engaged in a very in-depth investigation of these you know, some of these heavy duty thinkers and I think started to make them quite practical. Um, and I think there's been a succession of, of people, including myself, that have wanted to obviously build on what he's done and make sure we can make those links more specific. Um, so, you know, so what's this got to do with everyday life? Um, I, mean, yeah, I think, we've, we've I, think I don't know if this was uh, original to you or you adopted it, but I think the the way of chunking down the field into these three main areas mm. of um, languaging, cognition, slash cognition, and then moods, and then physiology, I think is a really elegant way to be able to begin to um, explore the material without getting completely snowed under. Yes, yeah, and, and the credit goes there to um, the two people I initially learned from, um, Billy Awalea and uh, Rafael Echevira. Who's the uh, second person? Rafael, and my Spanish is not too good, uh, Echevira. Okay, uh, I'm familiar with the first person because of the Newfield Network, but I'm not familiar with the name of the second person. Yeah, yeah, so they, 
they were colleagues for about five or six years and um, that's where I first saw the the, the three uh, domains which are originally presented as a triangle and then later came to be three circles. Um, but the first person I, well, I'm, I'm assuming they sort of borrowed this from the biologist, uh, Alberto Maturana, um, paper in 1988 that he wrote, he mentioned those three areas. Okay. And quite interesting, Moshe Feldenkrais, completely separate to ontology, but, but he acknowledged those three areas as well. Um, you know, I work with the body quite a bit. <laughs> I work with the interface uh, of those areas. And given my ontological uh, framework of, of, of being with people and looking and seeing, um, it's really remarkable what, how, how embodied, literally embodied yeah. our ways of being and our moods and our beliefs and our expectations are and how um, one of the things I've learned over working with people for over 40 years is that you can start anywhere that mm -hmm. all roads lead to Rome. You could yeah. start by increasing someone's awareness about their languaging. You could start with increasing their awareness about their moods. You could start with increasing their awareness about something with regard to their body posture or facial expression. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have the big picture, all roads sort of lead to Rome. Yeah. I, I think what's distinctive about the ontological approach is not just the three areas um, and that they're integrated, so there's a constant dynamic interplay. But if you're going to, <coughs> sorry, if you're going to have change that sticks, that people are actually going to make a shift in their lives, all three areas must change. Um, and sometimes I think there's a spontaneous spillover. Yes. Sometimes there's not. That's right. Like, for example, a lot of times in older patients that I have that have been a certain way of being for a very long time, there are what are called histological changes. In other words, by that time, by the time the person is, say, 45 or so, they've been this way for so long that there are fairly semi-permanent changes in the body that mm. without some intervention, it would be highly unlikely for them to change. And I see that showing up a lot in the connective tissue of the body. Oh, and um, yeah. and, and the, the connective tissue of the body can become disorganized and dried out and shortened mm -hmm. yeah. to the point where someone can go to the gym and attempt to exercise and produce changes at the level of their muscles. But because the connective tissue is wrapped around every muscle cell and every muscle and every yeah. organ, that unless uh, I get in there and actually make some conformational changes in the connective tissue, uh, their capacity to embody shifts that maybe they're starting to make on other levels is really, for all practical purposes, quite limited. And it's one of the things I love about my work is the ability to sort of uh, look at the big picture and find where the weakest link in the chain is mm. and attempt to make some intervention there and see what, how much of a ripple effect I can get until I get to the next stop. Mm. Mm. No, I, th I think that's, that's brilliant because... Um, you know, the fascia plays such a significant role, I think, even in our, our overall perceptions. Absolutely. Um, and and also, also, there's a tremendous amount of uh, energy in terms of emotional trauma mm. that is stored in the connective tissue as well. And so it is, it can be a powerful access route to that level of mind. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what we advocate for people that, you know, train with us and want to develop as ontological coaches is that, you know, you'll have some capacities for working with the body, but, but you're not a trained somatic 
practitioner, um, you know, with any great degree of speciality. But what we, we do contend is, you know, it's your responsibility to develop a really good network of support of people with other specialties so you can refer people off to. Oh, for sure. I mean, knowing when to make the right referral and to whom is, is, is golden. I mean, it's part of what makes, it's part of, I think, what makes an excellent mature practitioner in any field is to know what they know and to know what they don't know and to know some good people in, mm-hmm. in those areas and to know when to make a, a powerful and timely referral. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, there's just one other point I'd like to make, mention there in terms of what can be crucial in helping people make some changes, um, which you may be aware of coming out of the area of biology of cognition, what's called the um, conserving and transforming tendencies that uh, people, every living system has, that people have. Um, and it's it's neatly expressed in a um a sentence that everything changes around what is to be conserved um and the idea there is we we only change to the extent that we feel we feel a certain amount of assurance and and comfort that wherever we're going to in terms of being different we're not going to significantly compromise ourselves or put ourselves at risk in some way um and so uh, the way we approach that is to, um, or part of the approach is to, is to ask people, what is it that you, what is it that you very deeply value about the, the, the being you have been up until now? Uh, you know, because your life hasn't been a total train wreck. It's got you to where you are. Um, and to, to invite people to really get in touch with that and, and to make sure that, and, you know, often we're doing like a physical gesture, asking them to go and sort of, of take hold of that from themselves and bring it into um, a potentially different way of being in the body and integrate it. And that can make a, a very big difference for people. Um, but that can be very challenging for many people because um, you can have kind of a wish or a desire or a dream for yourself but if you don't love yourself enough or if your image of yourself doesn't allow you to mm. have that it always occurs to you as out there yeah yeah and uh the that's why ontology is so important because ontology gives a, a the possibility mm. and some methodologies for not taking being for granted. Yeah. I think I think that's where I think that's where psychology falls short. They they take being for granted and then within the being that they take for granted they attempt to help people to think and feel and act and speak in ways that work better for them. But what they don't recognize is that the at least the, the the at least the box in which all of those things exist um, is um, limited by what people are being that they don't know they're being and yeah. I think yeah. that's the limitation of psychology and when I work with patients and students in developing the skill of deep inquiry it takes many of my students years to have the skill and commitment level to take their inquiry deep enough to the realm of being so that they don't need me anymore. And one of the things I'm always looking for is ways to empower people so that maybe, maybe one day I'll come up with better ways of, of, of doing that so that it doesn't take, the average uh, person I'm working with so long to um, to be able to ask themselves the questions that I ask them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, you know, which 
what you what you referred to when I was sort of you know just broadly outlining that process is I think if, if people find it difficult to do that you've got a deeper way of being um, that's potential for exploration because um, if the person I mean one of the questions we have as well is do you fully and genuinely give yourself permission from now on to live from this different way of being and what we want to hear is a an unequivocal resounding yes um, but, but very often for people to get to that point they have to do a lot of they have to really take out the honesty cards and really look at the costs and payoffs of their current way of being and the willingness and ability to do that and to be deeply honest with what you're getting out of your current way of being even though you say you don't want that anymore mm. and to honestly take a look at what your current way of being is costing you in terms of what you say you want <laughs> mm. that can be some of the most courageous inner work that people need to do and most people need support in doing that oh very much very much yeah and um we we tend to use a different language to uh costs and payoffs we utilize it just comes from heidegger's work the notion of concerns and that every habit we have and everything we do we're we've always we're always taking care of something that's important to us but but pretty much that's out of awareness so if someone's got a way of being <clears throat> that is continually perpetuating their ineffectiveness and in some way they they realize that one of the questions we can ask is how's that taking care of you how is it serving you to be like that um, <clears throat> well, and, let's and, uh let's 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 uh take that and put it into a a, a, a hypothetical real situation hmm. okay Let's say you're working with a client and they, one of their patterns that uh, is getting in their way at some level is that they don't say no when it's to their benefit to say no. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's fairly common. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so let's, let's, keep going with where you're going but let's, okay. use, let's use that as an example to to put some mass to this yeah that's great um well i, I mean there's, there's two questions based on this notion of, of concerns one is like well how does it take care of you to not say no um and um how does it not take care of you um I, I get what you're saying. There's a there's a way that I do that that I'd love to get your take on. Is are you familiar with the technique that Nathaniel Brandon developed called sentence completion? Oh, vaguely, but not not specifically. Yeah. So he used this technique to be able to access help people to access the subconscious mind. Is mm. he would give people the stem of a sentence, and he would ask the person to say the stem without pre-planning the way they would finish the sentence. Okay. And you would have them repeat it a few times uh, and hopefully they would get to some juicy stuff and hopefully that would lead to either some realization or would lead to another sentence completion. Mm. So one of his favorite ways to get at what I think you're getting at with the question you're asking is he would do a sentence completion that would look something like this in the case of uh, the example I, I suggested. There would be two of them. One of, the, one of the stems he would say, have the patient say or the client say, is one of the good things about not saying no when I really wanna say no might be blank. And then the, set, the second thing might be, second sentence he might have people do is one of the bad or scary things about saying no when I really mean no might be. Mm. Yeah. I, I think it's in that territory. I'm, I'm going to sort of assess, I think the notion of concerns goes deeper than that. Uh, say um, more about that. Yeah, because I, I think it's at the core of being human. 
<clears throat> this is one of the beautiful things I think that came out of Heidegger's Heidegger's work. Um, like his his perspective is his his expression is humans are constituted by care. Um, he says that that includes being carefree and careless. Um, but everything we do is geared towards us taking care of things that matter to us. Um, and that could be like in the case of someone saying no, it, it could be what I call like a, a deep or a core concern, like of identity. Who would I be? Yeah. Who would I be if I didn't say no? Um, if I said no, would it be okay for me to have another identity? Um, you know, what would be the consequences of this? I think exploring all this with people um, yes. is about, you know, to me it's about a lot about exploration and searching for possibilities about what, what could open up for people. Say more about this, because um, I think it's such a powerful way of looking at things. Say more about the centrality of um, this business about looking at things from the lens of cares and concerns, human cares and human concerns. Yes, yeah. And if, if we use some more everyday language, it might be helpful. It's like concerns are is like what, what matters to us, what matters the most, what's, what's most deeply important for us. Um, <clears throat> and even, even when we engage in, let's say, perpetually ineffective behaviour, we are taking care of ourselves in some way um, because we've obviously we, we've learned to do that way and we've made a judgment that that's, that's, that's what's required. That's what's best for me. Um, but of course we all develop habits that are ineffective. Um, so it's, it's a way of, of inviting people to go, I think sort of fairly deep into their being um, around this notion of concerns. Um, how come, in your opinion, do so many people not take better care of what they say they care about? Wow, yeah. Um, I mean, ex explanations are a dangerous business without any, any grounded evidence, so this is pure speculation. Um, I just think we, you know, we, we grow up, you know, it's the whole thing about social conditioning. We learn in our families, in our communities, and even into adulthood, um, how we should be if we were to be regarded as an acceptable person in particular environments. Um, and um, I mean, again, this is sort of one of Heidegger's expression. He says, you know, in many ways, we all live inauthentic lives because he said we, we, we sort of, we live in the mentality of the herd. Right. Um, when he calls it the they self. Um, right. And so, you know, one way we learn to take care of ourselves is is actually to fit in with with all the the cultural requirements. Um, of, excuse me, of the world in which we grow up. And and one one of it, an interpretation one person might have make is, look, if I'm to be an acceptable person, and and I'm going to have good connections with people, I'm someone who shouldn't say no. Um, I mean, there's such profound. Uh, sociological and cultural implications to what you've just said, because it to me it points to the um, the importance of uh, doing everything we can individually and collectively to uh, increase the consciousness of um, the caregivers for young people, for the family yeah. unit, for uh -huh. um, defining and committing to what we mean by functional families and functional communities. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole um, subset of depth psychology. Are you familiar with uh, object relation theory? Uh, is that the subject object theory? Oh, oh, that's it's basically the idea that yeah. that identi identity develops for an infant and a toddler um, in correlation with their caregiver. 
mm. and mm. that um, it it points to the importance of the level of consciousness and the level of care of the caregiver. Yeah. Because literally the identity, you know, at the ego level, the, the, at the level of the human constructed identity, it's the, the identity of the infant and toddler is literally forming in, cor in, in, in correlation with the consciousness of the caregiver. Mm, mm. Um, and, you know, some of that consciousness is unconsciously interjected and adopted. Yep. Some of yeah. it is unconsciously rebelled against, but it's in reaction to. Um, and so your comments there about your answer to my question about why so many people don't seem to act in a way where they're really caring about what they say they care about. It really does go to these fundamental issues of identity and self-esteem that you're, that you're pointing at and, yeah. and how important it is as a, as a society to, um, to really take seriously the study of this area and the thinking in this area and the training of people that are going to be around young people. Yeah, very much, yeah. Um, I mean, people, you know, youngsters growing up are amazingly flexible. And of course, you know, there can be early learnings that are enormously beneficial and some not so. I think when we, <laughs> when we talk about people in adulthood living out of, you know, formed habits that they didn't realise they, they took on that are continually getting in their way, um, this is where I think the, um, the notion of the plasticity of the nervous system is, is so important that um, everybody has the capacity to change. Um, you know, all, all learning and change happens in the nervous system. And um, <clears throat> it, I think the, the job, I think, of an ontological coach is to be as, as sort of respectful and skillful as possible at finding a way, the, the term that's used by Maturana is, is perturb, which is like a respectful shaking up of somebody's system um, through which the person might make some changes in themselves. Um, because the nervous system doesn't have direct contact with the world around. So a coach or a therapist cannot directly change anybody. Right. They have to change themselves. But the skillful practitioners, I think, are very good at, I don't know, searching for the key, the clues as to what's going what's to give some leverage um, that might help someone develop a powerful new insight from which they could start to make a shift in themselves. I agree. Are you familiar with uh, the discoveries that have been made in neuroscience over the last 20 years about memory reconsolidation and the application of those scientific findings to um, helping people to make deep change? No, no, no. So there's a, um, there's a therapist in the United States named Bruce Ecker. Mm -hmm. E-C-K-E-R, and um, he and his wife um, have done some amazing work, and they've written a couple of books. The last book they wrote that you might be interested in is called Unlocking the Emotional Brain. Oh, okay. And what they did was they, um, they were doing some of this work in their effective work with people to begin with, but they didn't know why it worked. Mm. And then they came across the work of, that the neurophysiologists have done in memory reconsolidation to discover what are the conditions that are necessary that allow the nervous system to repattern itself spontaneously without needing to be reconditioned. Yeah, yep. And what they discovered was that when they're when their therapy work was transformational, they were unconsciously meeting many of those conditions. 
oh, but wow. now that they knew what the conditions were, mm. they, they could do it more masterfully and they could teach other people. And, yeah. and when I study Ecker's work, it really has, um, it really has an ontological ground to it, even though he doesn't talk about it that way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he takes the point of view that your persistent problems that you have that are, um, you know, he, he's not saying like if you have cancer or diabetes, but no. the yeah. kinds of issues that, that, that would be dealt with in a, in an ontological or psychological realm that they take the point of view that if you have a persistent condition that you say is unwanted, that there must be some part of you that is, um, it's meeting some need. Yeah. You know, it's, it's in some obtuse way, you're, you're caring, you're attempting to care for yourself. Yes. Even yeah. though it might be killing you. Mm. And um, so rather than fight against that part of you, and, you know, rather than the therapist trying to argue against that part of the patient, uh, the work is designed to <clears throat> bring out the awareness in the client of what that could possibly be. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and in other words, what have they been being in relation to that, that they didn't know? Mm. And so in that way, it has an ontological flavor. Yeah. Now he's not applying his work publicly. I don't know what he's doing privately. He's mm. not applying it to deeper areas of spiritual inquiry because that's not his client base. Yeah. But the principles are very similar, whether he's, you know, he, he could take the approaches that he's taking to the level he's working at, and he could apply it to a more, he could apply those same methodologies to fundamental questions of identity as well. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that sounds fascinating. But the, the, the neurophysiology is basically validating what we see as ontological coaches when we see a breakthrough mm. and we look at the conditions that tended to foster them it turns out that the um that the hard science tends to um validate what we're doing yeah yeah i think you know brilliant people who have intuitively hit upon things and found that it worked and um now it's being validated by you know different different aspects of science so he calls his work coherence therapy oh yeah okay because his view is that from from a certain perspective even the things you're doing that are not working have a certain logic yes yeah. have a certain coherence and 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 i reframe what he's doing by saying, I look at it ontologically, and mm. I've talked to him about this. I say, you know, when I look at your work, what you're really doing is you're really helping people to discover in relation to a specific issue what they've been being that they didn't know they were being. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Yeah, uh, it's beautiful. So he has an institute in Oakland called the Coherence Institute, and uh, they're doing some really good work. And uh, I'd love to connect the two of you. Uh, his last name is spelled E-C-K-E-R. Yeah, I've got that. Thanks, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> That'd be lovely. Thank and you. Of course, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the work from the physiological standpoint, the work that uh, Richard Heckler is doing. Yeah. Gauzy mm. Heckler. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know if you guys have communicated, but um, he's he's totally committed to taking the ontological model and applying it to how people use their body and being yeah. in the body. Yeah, I think he's he's been doing brilliant work in that area. Um, so it's nice to see the field starting to 
have some outlines of maturing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's some, there's, from what I'm aware of, there's some really good practitioners out there. I think a lot of working in the consulting, like organizational change space, which of course is, is very important. Um, yeah. You know, the thing is, is that it's uh, to become an excellent ontological practitioner. Um, you have to apply the, the principles to yourself. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I think that in that sense, it's kind of a spiritual discipline. Yeah, very much. Well, it all starts, you know, to me, it's like, we're not going to be authentic if we haven't, we're not continually applying this to ourselves and, and continuing to learn. You know, my, my spiritual teacher, my main spiritual teacher in this life has been Werner Erhard. Oh yeah. One of the things that he talks about is, and I'm sure he took this, he, he took this from Heidegger is that to be a real human being requires that you be authentic about your inauthenticity. Yeah. Mm. And that until you come to grips with your inauthenticity, there's no possibility for authenticity. Mm. Mm. And, uh, that has been something that rang true for me when I heard it and whatever, 35 years later, that still rings completely true for me. That yeah. um, there is sort of this dark night of the soul experience. It kind of brings you to your knees in some way. It humbles you to realize that the, uh, this is going to sound weird, but the being that's been using you ain't so pretty. <laughs> Not always doing your favors. Right. And, yeah. uh, and to be able to confront that without sending you into a downward spiral of guilt and shame and blame and judgment, I think, yeah. is one of the areas where an ontological coach can really help people. Because yeah. that's a very that's a very delicate time on, on, on people's path. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really important for a coach to, <clears throat> I think this is a term out of counseling, like normalize the situation. You know, what I'll say to people is, look, we're just a fellow traveler in life. Like yes. the clients we work with, we've got our own struggles and issues and breakdowns and we haven't got all our stuff together. And, um, I think to, you know, just to briefly share that with someone can be very helpful for them because often, you know, they put the coach or the psychologist or whatever up on a bit of a pedestal. Um, yeah. And I think that could make it harder for themselves. You know, another guy I'd like to connect you with, if you're not familiar with him, is do you know a guy in Colorado in the United States named Bob Dunham? Yes. Oh, well, I haven't actually met Bob, but we've sort of corresponded every now and then. So, so Bob has an Institute for Generative Leadership. Yes. And he's also co-authored a book that is amazing called The Innovator's Way. Yeah, I've got that, yeah. And so his interest is in applying ontological principles in the area of leadership. Mm, yeah. And, uh, that's an area that I think is, to me at least, is very exciting. And I think provides a way of looking at leadership as a as as an action yeah that yeah. that is very exciting yeah that's right you yeah, know I, I think he's made a distinctively brilliant contribution to the leadership field um <coughs> my, my kind of the essence of my take on an ontological approach to leadership is leaders can only lead from their way of being. Um, and so that's at, that's at the heart of them continuing to improve as a leader. Um, and they can only get their work done through others, which means um, interacting and communicating effectively with them. And the only place they can do that from is their way of being. And um, I think, I think the, the whole way of looking at, things we talked about earlier with regard to cares and concerns has real application with regard to what leaders do. 
Mm, because yeah. if someone's going to follow a leader, they have to believe that that following that leader is going to help them address their cares and concerns. Very much. And yeah. so, so it, it's useful for a leader, if the leader wants to have followers, to think in those terms and to be, this is going to sound weird, but to be in those terms. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, you know, I think the viewer and the listener from this conversation, obviously we've been kind of like, a couple of jazz musicians here just kind of riffing, uh, but that's okay. I think um, I wanted people to get a taste of what ontology is and what ontological coaching is and what the possibilities could be there for themselves and for others. Um, I'm a little cognizant of the time and don't want this to go too long, but I do want to give you a chance to say anything else that you'd like to say and also um to give you a chance to uh let the viewers and listeners know if they want to connect more fully with what you're doing with uh, i don't know if you're doing any individual coaching work these days but i know you your institute is, is doing teaching work and you have a uh, a, a series of four books that are very comprehensive and covering the field and so um, as we move toward the last, say, five or 10 minutes of our time together today, I just want to give you a chance to uh, say anything that you would like to say to the viewers and the listeners. Um, well, I think I, I keep reviewing this because sometimes I think, you know, am I getting a bit carried away with my enthusiasm about ontology? <laughs> um, you know, have, have a bit of reality check because you can you can believe your own press a bit too much at times. Um, but I think I, I keep coming back to being convinced this is a very different approach um, to I think a lot of what else is available to people. And um, it, it amazes me that it doesn't seem to be more widely known. Because um, every time I've worked with someone, and I've been doing this for 25 years now, people say things like, this is not rocket science, but it makes so much sense. Um, and um, what did one woman say? She said, uh, this, um, this makes the intuitive obvious. Yes. And I, I, I think the beauty of it is that everything in ontology is what we already do. Um, but the chances are, you know, we're, we're quite unaware of a lot of the, aspects that have been identified as what constitutes being a human being. And um, if this could be more widely available at a basic level to people um, and they could get support in application, it would be fantastic. Um, and that might be, I don't know, a series of online courses initially, you know, because it's hard for people to travel and pay money for conference expenses and everything. Um, I don't know how many people have said to me, why haven't we got this in our school system? You know, well, that's, uh, that's, that's another long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Very long conversation. Yeah. So, you know, it, part of me kind of lives in a, a puzzlement, you know, um, and that's where I think, oh, you know, do I get a bit over-enthusiastic? But no, I mean, I'm, I'm inspired by people when, when they come across this work and they connect with it. And what they do with it, it's it's just fantastic. Um, and I'm not saying it's the only, you know, a good thing that's available, but I, I do think it's amongst probably a handful of, I don't know, maybe ten or so approaches that we could say is distinctively different. And and what I what appealed to me about it right from the start is how deeply grounded it is in really solid thinking. Um, and yeah, as I said, the, the ideas of some really significant thinkers in the 20th century who, who played a significant role, I think, in the kind of intellectual change in what was happening in the, in the Western world. <coughs> um, anyhow, that was a long answer to, you, to your question. Um, How can people connect with you and your work? Um, probably easiest through the website. Um, so... Uh, because of a commercial um, issue, I've got two websites, one for Australia, 
and the other one's for international. So the international website is Ontological Coaching Institute. And the Australian one is Newfield Institute. Um, there's about 60 articles and papers and case studies uh, about different aspects of the work and applications. Um, the availability of courses is listed on the sites. Although in the current <laughs> climate, we're, we're sort of rapidly adjusting dates, not knowing when we can get together again with people. Um, <clears throat> can you talk briefly about your four books? Yes, yeah. Um, well, each one obviously has a different approach. The first one, um, after giving sort of an overview of the ontological approach and what I think is the relevance of historical context, focuses on the, the specifics of the, the language approach of ontology. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the second book, um, um, I create a sort of what I call a, a framework for understanding the importance of recognizing and managing your moods and emotions. And that's, uh, that's Bob Keegan, Rob, um, yeah, Robert Keegan's work on levels of adult consciousness. How do you spell his last name? Uh, K E G A N. Okay. Um, he's, um, it's a quite a, a straightforward, but I think an elegant approach. And I think, you know, if trying to kind of get the essence of what the ontological approach is about, it's wanting to facilitate people transitioning to what he calls a self-authoring mind. Um, so rather than, he uses the word scripts, rather than living out of the scripts of the world we grew up in. So this links the, into Heidegger as well, the, like the notion of the they self and um, conforming yeah. to cultural expectations. <coughs> starting to continue to be a responsible citizen, but write the script of our life. So um, that's a sort of meta frame for ontology and, and, and sort of with, with moods and emotions, which is the focus of the, the second book, which in particular looks at specific moods, the effects they can have on us and our perception and our behavior. Um, and also, how can, how can we go about changing our moods and emotions, taking responsibility to shift them? And then the third book um, looks at the biological underpinnings of the ontological approach. So it's um, looking carefully at the work of uh, Humberto Maturana and Francesca Varela um, in the development of what they call biology of cognition and, and how does it practically link in with everyday life and with coaching. And then the second half of the third book um, looks at the, the domain of the body. So I'll give a sort of philosophical underpinning to the body, um, drawing on, you know, people like Feldenkrais and um, Ida Rolf, um, uh, the Alexander technique, looking at what, what I call the conceptual underpinnings, and then the practicalities of, of coaching to the body, um, you know, given that people aren't going to be somatic therapists. <clears throat> and then the fourth book's meant to sort of be a broadening and a deepening of what's been covered in the, the first three books around the notion of, of professional artistry. Um, now, coaching's not a profession. It's an unregulated industry. Um, but I'm arguing that ontology can make a significant contribution to moving coaching towards being a profession and looking in detail about what are the phases um, a coach passes through if they're going to, to move towards being more professional in their approach? Um, and part of the responsibility for that is, of course, to be, be able to an observer and continually working with your own way of being. And, and then looking at the specifics of um, <clears throat> the ontological coaching process and, and really breaking it down in, into particular aspects and applications of that in, in an actual coaching conversation or a series of uh, conversations in an engagement. Um, that sounds fascinating. You know, the when you get to a certain level beyond the recipes, um, you really get into the art. And uh, I don't know how to teach art. Mm, no, I don't. I don't know if that can be taught. 
No. No, I think you, well, I mean, the, the notion of professional artistry was developed by a gentleman called Donald Schoen. Um, he wrote a book called The Reflective Practitioner and many others. He was quite an amazing sort of practical thinker. How do you spell his last name? Uh, S-H-O and then the German two dots or umlaut, N, Donald Schoen. I mean, but English would call it Sean. Um, and um, <clears throat> he, one of the things he, he highlighted, he said there are, there are practitioners in all walks of life, you know, doctors and uh, lawyers um, who actually don't have any more knowledge than fellow practitioners, but seem to flow smoothly into knowing the right thing to do, you know, in the right way at the right time to deal with what are often novel circumstances. Um, and I think with coaching, you never know what you're going to be dealing with. You never know what the issue is going to be, how profound it's going to be for people, um, you know, how your capability is going to be stretched. I'd like to take a look at that book. Has it been, I don't speak German, has that been translated into English? Oh, you know, he, he, he was an American guy. He worked... Um, I think he worked a lot in the field of, of management at, as he, at, in, um, in the university sector in America. Okay. Yeah. I want to um, look into that because I've had some frustration in my own life. As I get older, I, there's some things I'd like to be able to pass on. Mm. And uh, like I said, I'm a little frustrated. I don't know how to, I don't know how to teach. I don't know how to teach that level. I don't know how to teach art. Yeah, well, I, I, I forgot to mention why I was mentioning all of that. <clears throat> I think one of the things that I took from what he said is it's really how you, how you cr create the conditions of the learning environment that will allow people to explore and stretch themselves. And some people will want to go further than others, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, because some people will, will come out and they will be quite capable. They'll be competent. Um, Yes, but the the other people there'll be other people who might be, um, you know, two or three stages beyond that. So part of what I draw on in the fourth book is a um, a model of skill acquisition. Um, it's been developed by a Heidegger scholar called uh, Hubert Dreyfus. Unfortunately, he's oh, passed he away. just passed away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Berkeley, yeah, yeah. So. Um, I, 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 you know, I was able to marry Schoen's ideas with, with Dreyfus's framework and say, like, as ontological coaches, we could look at phases we could develop. And if you're going to do a coach training course, you'd want to come out as being competent. Right. Um, but sometimes within the course, people are developing so well, they might begin to move beyond that. And then when they finish the course and they're such committed learners, they can move beyond that sometimes to virtuoso. That's great. I, I definitely will get your, uh, your fourth book for sure. Um, that's very exciting. So can you give again one more time the, uh, the website addresses for uh, Australia and international for people want to access yes. your work? Yeah. So, so the Ontological Coaching Institute, the website address is ontologicalcoaching.com.au. And the Newfield Institute um, website address is newfieldinstitute.com.au. So if someone from the U.S. wants to access your work, they would still use a website that ends in .au? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because okay. they're both domain names for, in Australia. Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so give, give that international web address again. Yeah, ontological coaching dot com dot au oh dot com dot au yeah, yeah okay all right so um is there anything else you'd like to say in closing no that's thank, that's all david thanks very much for the conversation it's been enthralling really enjoyed having the discussion with you well i've been wanting to have this conversation for a long time uh thank you alan ladies and gentlemen you've been listening or watching another edition of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul, here where we do in-depth interviews with individuals that are doing cutting-edge work in the areas of healing, spirituality, and social transformation.
My guest today has been Alan Seeler, one of the world's leading experts in ontological coaching. He has an institute in Australia. There are materials that can be accessed um, online uh, from any, for anyone anywhere in the world. He also is the author of four very comprehensive books on the field of ontology and ontological coaching. So thank you again, Alan. And with that, we'll close with love and peace. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Freeing the Body, Freeing the Soul. To access all episodes, including show notes, go to cuttingedgedoc.com. That's cuttingedgedoc.com. Lastly, if you love today's show, you can support Dr. David, his work, and the show by going over to iTunes and giving a five-star rating and a heartfelt comment. Thank you again for joining us today and for your commitment to freeing the body, freeing the soul.